Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Candy. Happy May. Happy May. We are already here. Can you believe it? I cannot because it's early April for us. <laughs> How about us being a month ahead I of time? I know. It's going to be good, but we're going to fall right back behind because I have a big trip coming up and we are recording way in advance yeah. for my trip and then I'm going to get back. I'm already dreading like, we're going to be so behind. But, oh, well. Well, for right now, though. Mm-hmm. Right excited. now, I'm feeling good. Yes. And I'm excited because we are heading into an episode that I'm very excited about. Uh, me too. And I think our listeners will really like this one, too. I hope so. When I ask you this first question, they're going to they're gonna automatically know what it's going to be about. They're going to know because they're going to see the title. Okay. All right. Well. <laughs> Sorry so, to damper you. Right? <laughs> so, Ashley, tell yes. me about the first time you saw Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, which Ugh. is the 1977 original movie that, right. that came out. Which, why start with Episode Four? Why not just start with Episode One? But whatever, George, you do what you got to do. <laughs> but for those of us who like things in order, okay, that's weird. I remember seeing it on VHS. I think my mom recorded it off TV and I saw it on VHS. The one thing, you know, the one thing I do remember from it. What's that? Y'all are going to laugh because we talked about this in the fears episode. I remember that spooky little alien creature (laughs) who was in the cantina, right? She's in the cantina and she's singing and she's like, I could not handle her. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't handle her. When we went to Disney World and we went to the Star Wars land, I was a little nervous that she'd be lurking somewhere. (laughs) I could not look at her. She spooked me. What was it about her? She was there spindly. Were so many weird aliens. I don't know, but she had spindly legs and she had that long, right? She had a long, I can't even picture her in my head other than like this blob. I'm thinking of her and it might look at my eyes are watering. Yes, I can't. I can I can't. tell you're I'm reacting. Rubbing. I know. <laughs> She's just weird. But other than that, it was lovely. It was lovely. So you did enjoy it. You were a fan. I wouldn't say super fan, but I thought it was a good story. I enjoyed the movie. Yes. Mm-hmm. She just put me off. That is so funny. <laughs> I remember, I saw it very young, mm-hmm. and I remember that it was so different mm-hmm. from anything I'd ever seen before. Mm-hmm. I recall thinking Luke was way cuter than Han because Han <gasps> seemed old to me. Oh, no. He was old. No, Han's, yeah. Han's the guy. Well, I mean, now I yeah, see yes, that. Yes, of course, yes. At the time, I remember thinking that Luke was very cute. Mm-hmm. And I remember, to me, I just me reflectively now thinking mm-hmm. back, I'm not sure I'd ever seen a science fiction story before like that. Oh. You know, I don't remember in what order I saw, if I saw Back to the Future first or if this was my first exposure to a sci-fi film. But I do know, thanks to a YouTube video I watched, which I can put in the show notes, that Star Wars actually led to Back to the Future mm. because it led to more sci-fi. Mm. Films. Yes. This was a huge film. It was humongous. Mm. We went from Jaws being the first blockbuster to this one being a follow up blockbuster, which, again, in this YouTube video, they said nobody thought it was going to be successful except for Steven Spielberg, who said, This is going to be the biggest film of all time. 
he's the only one that thought that. Even George didn't think it was going to be that big a deal. Well, but one of the things that was interesting, by the way, I'm going to say this right off the top of the bat. There was a 2004 documentary that was amazing. The documentary was called Empire of Dreams, the story of the Star Wars trilogy. As I said, it was a 2004 production and it was unbelievable. So much of this information came from that documentary. I used other sources mm-hmm. as well. They're all in my show notes. Mm-hmm. But this documentary, guys, if, if you like Star Wars, if you are a fan of the original trilogy, mm-hmm. you will want to watch this because there are video clips, there are pictures, there mm-hmm. are interviews with George Lucas and Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill, all the people mm-hmm. associated with this film. And it is unreal. But in that documentary, to go back to your point, Steven Spielberg actually got to see an early cut where not everything was not put the together. Were done. Yes. And he actually expressed concern about it at that point ah. because he saw it so early in the process that it wasn't pulled together ah. yet. But yes, definitely. Steven Spielberg spoke many times in this documentary and he definitely was a huge supporter and a huge fan. I love that. You know, there was no competition between them, at least that we know about. They supported mm-hmm. each other. Here, Steven had made this huge film, Jaws, and then he was getting ready to be dethroned by his friend. And instead of being angry about it he was we talked about in the jaws episode where he took out that full page ad and said like congratulations absolutely what a good friend we all should have friends like that that celebrate each other's victories and like we're going to go through this together there's room for everybody let's all let's all celebrate each other absolutely an interesting tidbit that i learned was that george lucas actually would have had steven spielberg direct one of the movies had a little glitch not come up in his his plans there indiana jones no well we're jumping way ahead but he got angry who got angry george lucas at a fine that was put against him for putting the credits at the end and instead of the beginning instead of the beginning mm-hmm. and he paid the fine but as a statement he then quit the director's guild and that made it so that he could not hire steven oh. to direct the movie that's interesting because yeah. i do know that they used to put all the credits at the front because it was something to do with the union you had to put it at the front of the mm-hmm. another episode another time yeah well back to what we were saying a minute ago yes you are 100 percent correct this movie was huge there was a vanity fair article called 40 things that happened because of star wars wow and here is a quote from them star wars opened on wednesday may 25th 1977 by the end of that memorial day weekend the world not just the movie industry the world had changed yeah the fantastical sci-fi film inspired by flash gordon and akira kurosawa became arguably the most pervasive and influential pop culture nugget of the 20th century with a lasting impact on everything from language to politics yes yes and i uh, just looked it up so i can say it within the episode what i saw it's a very brief little 13 minute youtube called how star wars reinvented cinema by archer green and i i really liked it so check that out too yeah Awesome. You mentioned Steven Spielberg. We've already talked about him. One of the the comments he makes in this documentary is that Star Wars changed the business as we know it. Yes. It was one of the most groundbreaking sagas in Hollywood history. So this is why we've decided to focus on Star Wars 
for this episode, the first one in May. And of course, it's great timing because... May the 4th be with you. Exactly. Exactly. And it fits very well with our theme. We thought it would be a great way to... to Start start, the thread. Right. So do you want to explain to them what the thread theme means, Yes. So there was this podcast that I used to listen to a lot. And the funny thing about creating a podcast is it cuts back on your time to listen to podcasts. So I (laughs) haven't heard it lately, but I very much enjoyed it. And it, I believe it is called The Thread. And what this host would do is he would take a topic. I think he worked backwards. So he would take something, let's, let's say, let's say Avatar. I don't even know. But if for our topic, he takes Avatar and he works backwards to Star Wars and shows how Star Wars influenced Avatar. I don't know if that's true or not. Possibly it is. And that's what we decided to do with this episode. So we're starting at the beginning for us. So we're starting with Star Wars. And then every week, we're going to choose a topic that was influenced by the last one. For example, we will, I won't tell you the rest of them. But Star Wars this week, we're going to talk about Harrison Ford next week. And then when we talk about Harrison, something in Harrison's life is going to influence us for the following week. And then so on and so on through the five weeks of May. Yes. Yes. And if you are a member of our 1993 Buy Me a Coffee uh-huh. little group, then you actually have the opportunity to give some feedback as to what you would like the topic to be for our fifth week. Well, back into our episode here. One of the things that the documentary brought out several times was that timing was critical Mm -hmm. to the success of this movie. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take just a minute to set the scene, which is something they also did in the documentary. They pointed out that political and social scene of the 1970s was really super important to letting Star Wars be the success that it was. They, they said, picture the way it was in the 1970s. You had no internet. Mm-hmm. The space race was going on. People were living in a time of economic inflation, which meant gas prices, you know, gas lines, rising oil prices. People were disillusioned with the government and with leaders because they had just gone through Watergate mm-hmm. and the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Because of all this that was going around in society, going on in society, the films were also pretty dark. Mm-hmm. They said you had a lot of disaster movies mm. in the 1970s. You also had a lot of anti-heroes. The you- Godfather, the, the video I saw, they talked about how they were a lot smaller. You had One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You had uh, The Godfather, just very small character-driven pieces. And that this one was more broad. It was a very simple story told in this massive backdrop. It was this adventure movie. Another piece of the context was that the old Hollywood studio system had really fallen at this time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the studios were being bought by companies, even like soft drink companies, Mm -hmm. who really didn't know anything about the industry. And so this was, as George Lucas described it in the documentary, a time of change or even a time of confusion, which made it the perfect time to try some new stuff. Mm -hmm. What they decided was the young people would be a great target audience to make more movies targeted towards young Mm -hmm. people. And because they were going to target more young people in terms of their audience, it would also be a great time to give opportunities to young filmmakers. Mm. So basically, films for young people by By young young people. people. Mm -hmm. And so some of the young filmmakers who were coming onto the scene at this time were people like Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, Brian De Palma, and of course, George Lucas. Now, George had a project that had been in his mind for a long time. He had grown up reading adventure stories like the ones written by our friend, Robert Louis Stevenson. Yes. 
<laughs> and he also watched a lot of movie serials on TV. This was a guy who loved action adventure stories. So this is going to come into play when he goes to start his film classes yes. at USC in 1963. Yes, yes, yes. As you trigger thing, I'm going to you say the right U- YouTube. That's another thing that he talked about in the YouTube. He said before Star Wars, there were no sequels. There were sequels. We had James Bond, but it was not the same characters. So with Star Wars, we then had a sequel that featured the same people, the same good guys, the same bad guys. And this led to franchises, which never existed before that. Right. He started that. He started that. Yes, he started that. Yeah. Well, one of the things that was interesting about George, in addition to his love of action adventure was he also had an interest in mythology and philosophy. That Mm. was something else Mm -hmm. that inspired his work. And people who talked about him as um, a young artist also pointed out that he really liked films that had a very personal nature to them and he thought outside the box. So these are the things that set him apart even as a very young filmmaker. In fact, they showed this little clip of this early, early movie he made and it was very sci-fi, very different, very edgy for Mm. that time. Yeah. A recurring theme that we should also mention is that George was very anti-corporation, anti-mainstream Hollywood from the beginning. It's so wild because it ended up being taken over by a corporation and becoming so mainstream. And when he sold it to Disney. Yeah. Yeah. He literally acknowledged that. Wow. Later. But but yes, he started out anti all of it. In fact, that's what motivated him to start his own film company, Lucasfilm Limited in 1971. And his first film was American Graffiti. I like that film. Mm -hmm. Although I am sad about one of the characters' fates. I won't say unless you haven't seen it. Okay, now I have seen it, but I don't oh, know what you're talking about. The, the really cute one that went around in the car with Mackenzie oh. Phillips. Oh. He ended up dying in the war. Remember that? They oh. in the little and the thing that shows what happened to each character. His character, I think, is killed in the war. And oh, I always thought it was not so the sad. actor. You mean no, the character. not the actor. Yes, the character. Okay. I was so sad because I thought he was super cute. Yeah, yeah. Got it. American Graffiti was loosely based on George Lucas's own experiences growing up. Mm-hmm. He was. A young person who loved cars and he loved cruising and the movie was produced by Universal Studios. So the reason why he made the film was because he'd been doing some things with Francis Ford Coppola that had been super experimental and, and really edgy. His friend, Francis Ford Coppola, actually challenged him to try something different. He challenged him to create something that was just really silly and light, warm and fuzzy, a comedy, and that this was his attempt to do that. American Graffiti was? American Graffiti was. Wow. Yes. You've mentioned some of the stars already, Mackenzie Phillips and Harrison Ford. There was also like Ron Howard, Sidney uh-huh. Williams, Richard Dreyfus, Suzanne Summers. Makes yep, she was in the car. So many people. They filmed it for under a million dollars in 28 days. Wow. And even throughout this process, again, George had this really big thing about wanting to control his own work. He did not like other people tampering with things. And so an example of this was he and his co-producer were both upset when Universal Studios kept trying to interfere with their decisions. Yeah. One thing that they decided to do was they held a screening and they were excited about the response they got. They felt like this was helpful to them. And then they took some criticism from Universal Studios for doing that. Why? That wasn't part of their normal process. They didn't like it. So all of this is pushing George to go his own way, right? Now, he was also during this time sharing with some of his creative partners or some of his close friends that he wanted to do a sort of a Flash Gordon 1930 style space opera. It is an opera for sure. It is. They called it so many things. It was mm-hmm. funny. The, a morality tale. A soap a, opera. Yeah. It's a space a soap space opera. fairy tale. Yeah. There's so many different 
Yes. But he said people kept asking, well, why would you want to do that? And his response was that it was a chance to appeal and make an impression on young people. Mm -hmm. Back to his interest in mythology. One of his big influences was Joseph Campbell. This was a guy who was a writer and a scholar who did a lot of research around the origins of myths and world religions. And so Joseph Campbell in particular was really interested in trying to find these myths that tied all kinds of different cultures and patterns together. Like what are some of these underlying motifs or themes that kind of cross all these different cultures? Okay. And this inspired George. So he was trying to come up with through his own research what are some of these universal motifs, is what George called them. And he intentionally then tried to put this into this space opera that he was creating. Mm -hmm. He was so intentional that he even asked Joseph Campbell to give him some feedback Whoa. on his ideas and on his characters yeah. to see if he was getting it right. And in the documentary, journalist Bill Moyer said that Joseph Campbell commented to him, to this journalist, that George was the best student he ever had. Oh. Yeah. So we're going to come back to this because a little side note is this hero's journey idea that Joseph Campbell is known for is something so prominent. It was actually in our eighth grade language arts curriculum for really? years. Yeah, we taught it to our eighth graders. The hero's journey. The hero's journey. Mm -hmm. Yes. But this is George, again, groundbreaking. He's taking just this research from Joseph Campbell, this hero's journey idea, and he's creating a work based on that. That's amazing. It is amazing. And it's just so unbelievable. But in addition to it being the hero's journey, George also called it a coming of age story. Mm -hmm. So it, it crossed a lot of different things. Oh, they also called it a space western. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Mm -hmm. I think it's a cross between a soap opera and a space western. <laughs> Isn't it funny that you could label it so many different ways? Mm -hmm. Again, that's how universal mm -hmm. it is. Well, he started working on the actual screenplay in 1974. And he knew that his basic premise was he wanted an epic battle between a rebel alliance and an evil empire. It it went through all kinds of changes. In fact, Luke's original name was Luke Starkiller. I like Walker better. I do too. At one point, he would have been a 60-year-old general. Oh. Yeah. Now, if you want the young people, you got to make him young too. So he made the right decision. Yeah, he yeah. did. I approve, George. <laughs> I'm sure, he'd be I'm so sure he grateful. cares. He's yeah. so happy. He's like, oh, thank goodness, this <laughs> random farm girl approves. <laughs> At one point, Han Solo had green skin and gills. No, yeah. you made the right choice there too, Harrison yeah. Ford. The debate over what the supernatural power would be before they came up with the force. Like, like oh, at one point okay. it was like a crystal. It was, mm. I mean, it was really cool to think about all the different things he considered. Mm -hmm. Now, something they pointed out was most science fiction films of that time, I don't even think there were tons of them, but most of the science fiction films really didn't bring in that much money. 2001 A Space Odyssey is the one they mentioned in there the go. video. Well, George was having a hard time finding somebody who was interested when he was pitching it. And that's the way it always is when it's mm, innovative mm, like that. Yes. It's new. It's different. Oh, we don't want new and different. We want the same, but different. Right. Yeah. So different. But Alan Ladd Jr. of 20th Century Fox was the one who took it on. And this was a really big deal. In fact, Alan Ladd was interviewed several times on this documentary. And George talked about like this was not just... Alan betting on a, on a story, he was betting on the filmmaker. Like, yes. like he took this yes. as a huge vote of confidence yes. in himself. That was George's paraphrase. But what helped out was American Graffiti was finally released and was so successful that all of a sudden now... That's not has, such a mm -hmm, risk. Not such a risk. It gave him some bargaining power. But what George did 
super, super, super smart. He was actually offered more money for his work. I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. What do you want to say? It? No, I'm going to guess what you're going to say is he took a pay cut in exchange for merchandising rights. That was genius. It was genius. Yeah, he was supposed to get 500000 They were going to raise it to 500000 He said, nope, I'll keep the 150000 for a huge slice of the merchandising, yes. but also the right to make the sequels. Ah. Because what he had figured out as he was writing it, this story was bigger, bigger. than one movie. He mm -hmm. could tell from the very beginning it was going to take three. Mm -hmm. And so he knew that he wanted to start with just the first portion of it. Mm -hmm. And he wanted the sequels to get made. Mm -hmm. So from the very beginning, and it's and a you, three parter, basically, right. And what you said is so true. Like Hollywood didn't love sequels. Sequels mm -hmm. normally did not do mm -hmm. super well. So for him to do this was his way of saying, I'm going to make this happen. Mm -hmm. This is going to occur. Mm -hmm. So that's how much he cared about it. So casting. Casting was so fun to watch because they had clips of people like Kurt Russell. Oh, wow. Kurt Russell would have been great. <laughs> He's so cute. As which character? I don't care. <laughs> I think he auditioned maybe for both Luke and Han Solo. Oh, uh, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever William, he wants William to William Cat. I don't know if you know who he uh -uh. was. I, I, he looked very 70s. He must have been big at that time, but he, I kind of vaguely thought he looked familiar, but he was another one that they showed. And of course they showed Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill blew it away. He's great. He was great. He was so good. And what they talked about was they needed Luke to have, again, it was a coming of age story. They needed him to have an air of innocence yeah. and sincerity. And, you know, again, the hero's journey. Right, we right. needed this young hero and they said Mark was just a natural. That's he wonderful. was. You could watch him and you were like, of course he should have gotten yeah. that. Now, one of the things that George wanted was he wanted the stars to be unknowns or relatively unknown. Steven did that a lot too. You know, my friend Steven, I can refer to him by his first name. <laughs> so close. Steve. 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 Steve said. Yeah. Steve told me. Yeah. So Harrison Ford was told he could not have a role. Because he was already known. Because he was known. Mm. But they brought him in to help with auditions. I remember that. Yeah. He was reading opposite people and he did so well that they like, oh, well, okay, Harrison. <laughs> Finally, he wore him yeah. down. Yeah, they said that he would even be giving people tips like, try it like this. No, do it more like this. And uh -huh. they're finally like, you've got the role. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Princess Leia was another one that was challenging. I think they had a lot of people come out for her. They knew they needed her to be very young, but also to be very confident because mm -hmm. she's a princess. She mm -hmm. needed to have this really self-possessed air. And they said when Carrie Fisher read, even though she was so young. She was like 17, right? Yeah, 17 or 18, yeah. Which is funny because Debbie, her mom, Debbie Reynolds, her big breakout role was Singing in the Rain and she was only 17 in that oh, one. Oh, so it was parallel. Yeah, it was. Well, they commented actually the fact that she came from Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher, Fisher was part of why they felt that she was so self-assured. They said she literally was a product of Hollywood royalty mm. and she nailed it. But Carrie Fisher said in the documentary, quote, I got it with the proviso that I went to a fat farm and I lose 10 <sighs> pounds. She was very tiny. She anyway. was tiny. She was teeny tiny. I, and that shows you what things were like. Yeah. And this was only... It's still like that. What do you mean? It's still well, like that. Yeah. Oh, talk about a scandal. We should have done that for our last theme. The whole Eddie Fisher, Elizabeth Taylor, Debbie Reynolds scandal. Mm, we'll come back Ooh. to that sometime. Yeah. yeah. Well, because they did have relatively unknowns for those three leads, they knew they needed somebody strong and impressive mm -hmm. for Obi-Wan. So they cast Alec Guinness, who had a very strong reputation. And it was very nice to hear other people talking about him. They said this was a guy who was the one who was really critical acclaimed mm -hmm. and, and 
very important. Mm -hmm. And they said he could not have been nicer. Oh, that's good. So polite, so professional, so good natured. Even they were doing some of those opening scenes, you know, where Luke comes out of his house. And they said in real life, it was like 100 degrees. And they said whenever they were in places like that, that Alec Guinness would just be uncomplaining. Oh, that's good. He, yes, he just kind of set the example for everybody else. He was a leader who led. Mm -hmm. They needed somebody big for Darth Vader. So they cast a bodybuilder who actually said the lines as they were acting. Because oh, in the middle of the scenes, yeah. he would say the lines with a British accent <laughs> and a voice that was very just your normal, Lovely. Your normal guy's voice. <laughs> He's not scary. Yes, not at all. And one of the special effects team members even commented how hard it was for them <laughs> to work because they had no actual idea how Darth Vader was going to sound oh, when this funny. was all done. And then... Of course, later they added James Earl Jones' voice yes. because George did want this voice to sound very deep and imposing. Commanding. Yes. And they added all those other sound effects, you the know. Yes. Which part of which was through using scuba equipment. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. It was That was another thing they brought out in that YouTube is how practical all the effects were. There was mm -hmm. no digital. It was all practical effects, which is genius. Right. Well, and then that's what they had to work with at yep, that time. That's what they had. Come up with it. Chewbacca also had to be cast primarily based on size. So a fella named Peter Mayhew was chosen because he was over seven feet tall. Wow. That's what won him the role. He yeah. was actually working as a hospital orderly. <laughs> so this was not a guy who was in acting. No. Yeah. They needed living actors to bring R2-D2 and C-3PO to life. So Anthony Daniels, who they often referred to as Tony, he won the role of C-3PO partly because he had the slender build that they needed. Mm -hmm. Now, he shared that while they were doing the filming, they didn't know what they were going to do for C-3PO's voice. So they did have him saying the lines just like they did the fella for Darth Vader, but he had no idea if this was going to be used or not. So mm -hmm. he was acting it full out mm -hmm. and he decided himself, what would C-3PO sound like? And he decided he was going to... <laughs> going to portray this character as an over-the-top butler who was also very nervous. I love it. And using his own British accent. I love it. And he said that they kept debating and finally George was like, you know what? I think your, your voice works. <laughs> Let's just keep it. Let's just go with it. He, he said how proud he was. I love how he walks they, too. Yes, yes, I love it. They needed an adult to do R2-D2 because the equipment was a bit challenging mm -hmm. to manipulate. Mm -hmm. So Kenny Baker won that role and he, he said, of course he was very excited about it, but he also said it was a little difficult being inside R2-D2. I would get very claustrophobic. Well, and sometimes it was hot and sometimes, you know, like moving and, mm -hmm. you know, across sand dunes mm -hmm. and some of the different environments. I mean, it was not an easy gig, I don't mm -hmm. think. A cool thing was that those two actors were the only two that were in all of George Lucas's Star Wars films. And Tony Daniel, C-3PO, was the only actor who was actually in all nine no of the kidding. Star Wars it movies. It was him? It was him. Wow. Only one. Wow. Yeah. The nervous butler makes it to the end. So a few other interesting little side facts. We mentioned this already, but George did decide to put the credits at the end of Star Wars because he felt that the dramatic opening crawl where yeah. you've got the little background information scrolling across would be much more effective for dramatic purposes and excitement. And they let him get away with that in the first movie. But remember, 
remember after it was so popular, the second movie when he did the same thing is when they said, we're going to charge you $250,000 for doing that because it breaks the rules. Wow. So this is what we referenced earlier. He paid it, but was furious. So he left the DGA basically just as a statement. Uh And that is what cost him the opportunity to have Steven Spielberg Did he direct direct the third one himself? No, okay. he, he got another fellow to do it, okay. but he wanted Steven Spielberg to direct the third movie, Return of the Jedi, and couldn't do it. Mm. Yeah. Now, the score. Oh, it's a great score. Yes. That's a great score. And he took a note from his friend Steven Spielberg, and he asked John Williams to the do best. it. The best. And this was, another, this was another way that George, he was always willing to do his own thing. He was mm-hmm. always willing to think outside the box, mm-hmm. because at this time, it's the 70s. Mm-hmm. Disco. Right. Pop music. Right. You know, all this really fast beat. And he chooses this epic sound. He went so traditional. They said that that was not the popular choice right then. But he said, give me symphonic. Give me the full orchestra. John Williams recorded the soundtrack in 12 days with his orchestra. And obviously, it was amazing. It was iconic. There's no words. There's just no words at how brilliant these guys are. Well, and that's a great segue because we're getting ready to move into what I hoped to, to make kind of the, I don't know what you want to call it, the, the organizational device of this episode was I wanted to talk about three specific ways that Star Wars has impacted the future, the future, basically. Mm-hmm. Yes. How, how did Star Wars and George Lucas, how did they change things together? <laughs> right. So we're getting ready to talk about impact number one, how they changed technology and filmmaking. But before we do that, maybe this would be a good time to take a break. Let's do it. Do you love tea? Do you love entertainment? Do you love listening to stories from your two new BFFs? Then consider joining the club over at buymeacoffee.com. For $5 per month, you can be a part of the 1939 Club, otherwise known as the Golden Year of Cinema. When Gone with the Wind, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Stagecoach of Mice and Men, Wuthering Heights, Hound of the Baskervilles, The Little Princess, Babes in Arms, Goodbye Mr. Chips, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and of course, The Wizard of Oz were released. Perks include a 5% discount on new merchandise, a shout out for new members, an opportunity to be listed as a supporter in show notes, and exclusive access to bonus content. However, if you're feeling doubly generous, you can join the 1993 Club, otherwise known as the greatest year of cinema. This is the year that Schindler's List, The Sandlot, The Fugitive, Rudy, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, Sleepless in Seattle, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Mrs. Doubtfire, Grumpy Old Men, and of course, Jurassic Park were released. Additional perks in this club include a 10% discount on Scandalwater merchandise, the opportunity to record a shout-out of your own, and the chance to vote in our guaranteed content poll, along with the warm and sunny feeling that you're supporting your besties. If clubbing isn't your thing, there's a one-time gift option, too. Either way, those who support Scandalwater report fewer bad hair days, more green lights and traffic, and a grander sense of purpose and wonder at least once per day. Scandalwater, we do the research so you don't have to. We're back. Yes. All right. Ready to talk about how George Lucas changed filmmaking and specifically special effects and technology. Right. So when he went to make his film, he needed technology that did not exist. Just even saying that, it didn't exist. It did not exist. So let's create it. Right? He first founded Industrial Light and Magic because he needed a team to help him create it. (laughs) 
so they had to set about figuring out how to make this happen. And so they use things like models or uh, inventing new camera approaches, yeah. having to, to find ways to represent different landscapes. They just started creating. To give just a few examples, here's one that I absolutely loved. Obviously, with the film being called Star Wars, right. these space battles were going to play a huge role. They right. needed them to be really, really right. good. And they didn't know how to make them realistic. So the special effects team was struggling a little bit. So George Lucas went in and he spliced together battle scenes from old war movies. And the team would sit down and they would take these scenes that were showing planes, airplanes, in, you know, dog okay. fights that okay. are happening in the air. Uh -huh. And they would match that frame by frame to create realistic battle scenes that are now occurring in space. Gotcha. And one of the team members who was interviewed on this documentary talked about how incredibly helpful that was. Had George not done that, he did not think it would have looked nearly so realistic. Mm. Mm -hmm. They based it on something real. Yes. Another example was that many of the scenes, as we said, were created by using models with painted backdrops behind them. So in the documentary, you could see scenes where you would see a starship that was just basically a model along a string, and then they would just <laughs> move it across, and that's supposed to be this starship landing. Nice. We've also talked about the fact that the sound effects team had to create sounds that did not exist in our world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for Chewbacca, for example, they would blend together a variety of different animal sounds mm -hmm. to try to show his different communications. This is reminding me so much of our Jurassic Park episode where Steven had to come up with the sounds for the dinosaurs. He had to come mm -hmm. up with how they moved. He said, I want it to be practical. I don't want a lot of digital stuff. I want it to be puppetry. And see, this is, again, back to your point. This is how these men collaborating together and being yes, friends. Yes. Because Steven Spielberg stole some of yeah, these sure. ideas from his friend George. Let's say borrowed. Well, I mean, when you're friends, you steal from each other. <laughs> <laughs> Do we? Okay. Yeah. I'm going to keep that no, in mind, No, candy. no, but you're right. <laughs> they, yes, they shared these ideas yeah, with each did. other. There was they no did. stealing or right. borrowing. They, they learned from each yeah. other. So for R2-D2, they were trying all these different things. They didn't know how to create the sound of this, you know, little robot. So so they started with a synthesizer and then one of them said, you know what? I think R2-D2 kind of might sound like, like baby noises. Mm. And they kept playing until ultimately one of the team members made baby sounds and they blended that with a synthesizer to create his noises. Oh, that's yeah. cute. So just a few examples. They're doing all of these wonderful things. They are doing great work. But it was slow moving. Yeah. They're pouring more money into it. And George has a vision. He wants everything to be the way Just he so. planned it to be. In fact, they said he was the storyteller. Mm -hmm. They needed to bring his story to life. After they'd already filmed everything in post-production, George ends up working with the team, trying to get it the way he wants it. And got so stressed out that at one point he thought he was having a heart attack. Oh, wow. He went to the hospital and he was told that he was suffering from hypertension, stress, and exhaustion. Yeah. So that's the kind of investment he had it's with his scary movie. It's scary because he doesn't know that it's going to be the biggest movie of all time. He doesn't know. Yeah. You don't know what's going to happen. You never know what's going to happen. Absolutely. Well, ultimately, Star Wars blew people away with its special effects. It ended up winning an Academy Award for sound and visual effects. Mm -hmm. And I I am paraphrasing here, but Steven Spielberg did comment something to the effect of, I've never experienced special effects that were so real before. Mm -hmm. And it, it's funny, I shared this with you before we started, Ashley, but I'll, I'll say it again, just in case our listeners find this interesting. But Kirk and I watched a little piece of this movie together, 30 or 40 minutes, just to kind of get back into the mm -hmm. flavor the of it. We hadn't seen it in a while. And I was watching it from that perspective. I was being super analytical because I've done all this research. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking, you know, and I, I comment to 
Kirk, I'm like, you know what? Maybe they don't seem, you know, that impressive now, but this is, you know, this was really amazing for that time. And Kirk is like, are you kidding me? <laughs> he said, the whole time I'm watching that, this all I'm thinking is, this is this amazing. Is amazing. Yeah. How did they do this yeah. in 1976, 1977 yeah. when they were filming this? He was like, this is unreal. Mm-hmm. And it did, it broke ground. But it was so interesting because they go on to say, while this was incredible and is winning, you know, Oscars and awards and and all the acclaim, ILM's technology had advanced light years by the time they made the second movie even. Like these people were just off and running and they had new challenges coming at them. By the time they were doing the second movie, they're now adding puppetry. They've got Yoda Yoda. (laughs) and all kinds of new things. They they had so many different settings. Like a lot of Star Wars is in space, they went crazy in Empire Strikes Back. So they changed the way technology, special effects, and filmmaking happened with their Star Wars film. They did. Yeah. So a second impact that we'll go ahead and address right now is merchandising. Merchandising. Man, this is, this is, this is of all the things, this is the big one to me. You can't underestimate the technology, but the genius for better or for worse, the genius of adding in the marketing it the, just, foresight. the foresight. The foresight. Yes. I think that's what gets us is like, how did this man how did predict? You know? How did he know? Because he's made so much more off merchandising yes. than he's made off his films. Yes. Yes. And, and that I've seen that across several sources. George Lucas made more from merchandising than the film. Than the films. That is crazy. Mm-hmm. One source said something about the merchandising of Star Wars, and I think this is all Star Wars, being something like a twenty billion dollar industry. Mm-hmm. And it's still going. Yes, it's, it's still-, still going. And it's a passive income at this point. Yeah. Because now you just take the characters that were already created and you slap them on a lunchbox. You slap them on a t-shirt. You just put it anywhere and you're going to buy it because the Star Wars fans keep giving birth to the next generation of the Star Wars fans. You know, you grow up with it. That's that's the whole idea behind Disney World. You grow up the person with Disney World and then they're going to want to take their child to Disney World. It's right. going to just, you're going to birth cycle. your own fans. Yes. Yeah. Well, when you say it's still going... Here's an example. I was on a little weekend trip with Kirk and we stayed overnight, obviously. And so in the elevator of our hotel, Saturday, a family gets on with us and the mom is carrying two pillows for her sons who are in the elevator with us. Star Wars pillowcases. Yeah, because we have the Mandalorian right now. And then I go to a little tourist site on, it was Saturday afternoon, same day. There's a fella sitting down on a bench wearing a Star Wars t-shirt. Yep. This is one day. Yeah. And you've already (laughs) seen him twice. Right. So it is definitely still going strong. Have you, by the way, I'm curious, have you ever worn, owned any... I did, yes. I had I had an R two D two shirt. It was like a little baseball shirt. I like those, and it had it was blue and it had R two D two on it. Okay. But that's been my only shirt that I've had. I'm not sure if I've ever owned any merchandise myself, but Kirk <laughs> said that he had it all. Mm-hmm. He said he had all the action figures. Yes. He had the creature cantina play set. Oh no, he was had... that girl in it? I wonder. Ask him later. I, I, was the ask... creepy girl? Uh, Don't show out. it to me, okay. Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take a picture and show it to me. That's so funny. He had. The, he had the X-Wing and the TIE Fighter. Yeah, he had it all. Well, just to flesh this out just a little bit more, we've already said that he made that deal, right? Yeah. So for marketing and merchandising, here are a few other smart things that they did. They decided, George is obviously behind all this, they were going to try to start marketing this film before it even came out. Mm-hmm. They thought 
okay, really, we're probably just looking at sci-fi fans. They did not understand the audience they were going to have. They're thinking it's probably going to be this little target audience. A niche audience, yeah. Right. So one of the things that they tried to do to generate excitement was they released a novelization based on the movie. Oh, that's smart. And they also started this little comic book series with Marvel. And so the first one, first one of that comic book series did come out before the movie was even released. So they started. And that gives some basics. Now you're seeing who you're going to see a movie about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then in terms of merchandising itself, they started reaching out to all these different companies trying to set up this relationship. And they kept getting turned down. Because it wasn't that it had never happened before. I think it had been tried a couple uh-huh. times. It just hadn't gone anywhere. Gone anywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. It just wasn't something that, you know, movie merchandising was just not a thing. Yeah. So finally, Kenner Toys signed on with them, but had no idea what was about to happen. <gasps> So here is an excerpt from a Mental Floss article that explains what did happen. Quote, Instead of flooding the market with action figures and dolls for a movie that could very well end up being a flop, the company decided not to manufacture any toys right away. Unfortunately, there wasn't just a demand for Star Wars toys that year. There was an outright fever that took the company completely by surprise. Wow. And with Christmas just a few short months away, Ooh. the ill-prepared Kenner yeah. needed to act fast, realizing it would be impossible possible to get a full line of Star Wars toys manufactured in time to meet the needs of the holiday season, a Kenner executive named Bernard Loomis knew he had to improvise. Instead of simply releasing a proper toy line in 1978... Did he do the first of a series? No. What'd he do? He came up with something that was called the Early Bird Certificate Package, which they now call the Empty Box Campaign. What? You bought an empty box? Parents would go to the store and they would pay basically $8 to get this little cardboard package that had like like it had a picture uh-huh. of the figures and it told them you're going to get this <laughs> when it comes out which by the way didn't happen until february <gasps> or june of 1978 but it also had this little mail-in certificate that said okay if you mail this in you're going to get the first four figures luke skywalker princess leia r2d2 and chewbacca and it also had like this little certificate that said you're part of this group yeah that's what they gave to kids, kids for christmas for, kids got an empty box got for Christmas. An empty box and then the merchandise came to them months later. Wow. Months later. Wow. And everybody was doing it. Yeah. And the kids were excited. They were like, I have a box. Woo-hoo. Yes. I have a promise. I actually found a picture of the empty box. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna put it Okay. We're gonna, we're gonna put that, that in would, show notes. I don't think that would work now. I don't think so, but I think there are some things you pre order. People pre order things if, now. If you gave your child an empty box now Oh, not a child. Yes. 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 Okay. All right. That's I, what I mean. I gotcha. Well, Mark Hamill talked about the fact that it was not just the merchandising was not just restricted to action figures. He talked about seeing his face on a cereal box. Yeah. Be how wild. funny that was and making the bubble gum card yeah yeah yes carrie fisher joked that you know you've made it when you see yourself on a pez dispenser yep they were everywhere lightsabers t-shirts all the things so it was interesting because we said all of these 20th century fox executives probably thought they were the ones who made the great deal mm-hmm. but george lucas ends up making all this money it says here was an interesting little tidbit all the sources agree that the majority of George Lucas's money came from merchandising when it came to the Star Wars series. And according to an article, I think, that came out last year, they said he is still the wealthiest director, even ahead of Steven Spielberg. Really? 
And in recent years, he's retired from directing uh-huh. and he's given a lot of money to charity. Mm-hmm. And they said that he is still estimated to be worth over $5 billion. Wow. And that is according to Forbes. Wow. I wonder yeah. if he's happy. Is he happy in his retirement? Because I know he was kind of bitter when he first sold. Wasn't he kind of bitter? I don't know. I don't know. So I wanted to, before we talk about the last impact, I thought I would tell you how the movie was received when okay. it came out. Okay. Okay. So kind of jumping back into the timeline here for a second. Obviously, they had no idea. They thought they had their little tiny mm-hmm. sci-fi fan base. Mm-hmm. They were doing all these things to try to market, try to merchandise all, you know, but they didn't know. And several of them talked about how excited they were when they saw the audience reaction. Of course, we've talked about Blockbuster. There were lines around the block. Mm-hmm. One studio executive talked about literally hearing and seeing people scream, cheer, stand up. Wow. Talked about going to Japan, and at the end of the movie, there was absolute silence and thinking like, oh. Oh, it's it's tanked? Yes. Oh, it was a failure, and found out later that the ultimate compliment was when the movie was received with silence. Really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yes. Just a quick little note. I don't know if you guys will find this interesting, but again, I was asking Kirk some questions, and I said, you know, were you a huge Star Wars fan? Tell me about it. And so this was not the first movie, Mm -hmm. but I think it's indicative of the kind of enthusiasm people felt towards this. He shared that when Return of the Jedi was coming out, he was not old enough to drive, but he was he was close, but he wasn't old yeah. enough to drive. And so he and his friend had actually run a 10K together that morning in Louisville. Uh-huh. And it was down, I don't know if you know where, where the zoo is in Louisville, about three miles from the Showcase Cinemas, which is where this movie was going to be playing. So yeah. after running, these fellows changed clothes, cleaned up, walked three miles. Oh my goodness. And got in line at the theater. Uh-huh. I said, how far before the movie were you there? He said, eh, probably around two hours. And there was already a long line going down the side of the building where people were wow. waiting to get in to go see this movie. Wow. That this is not the first one. Return of the Jedi would yeah. have been the third one. But this is the kind of enthusiasm mm-hmm. people had for these movies. So Star Wars huge it also broke box office records it was obviously not just a sci-fi audience that loved it they said it appealed worldwide kids loved it which meant more merchandising right and it received critical acclaim it was nominated for 10 academy awards it won seven one of them was not best picture but it Mm -hmm. had all kinds Mm -hmm. of other ones and as we've already said it brought superstardom to mark hamill harrison ford and carrie fisher And to George Lucas, it brought not just money and fame, but also credibility because it set him up for what he wanted all along to be able to make the two sequels because from the very beginning, he wanted to tell his full Full story, story. which brings us to the third and final impact that we're going to talk about today. Okay. This movie, Star Wars, launched the incredibly successful Star Wars franchise. Well, yeah, that's the most obvious impact. Yes, it's it's still growing. Well, it's still going and growing. We use the word foresight. I keep coming back to that. Like the foresight to set it up where he's like, no, I know these other two are going to be just as important. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make sure they all get told. Right. You know. And the way I want to tell them. And the, Exactly. So here's a quote from a Scream Rant article. While Star Wars was constructed to stand on its own if it didn't make enough money to launch a franchise, mm-hmm. 
George Lucas planned at least five subsequent movies from the beginning. The opening text crawl announces that the original 1977 movie is episode four of a larger narrative. Right. Well, not in the original cut, but the original cut of The Empire Strikes Back did declare it to be episode five when it was the second Star Wars movie released. So that's when it kind of brought that out. Okay. The first Star Wars movie set the stage for sequels. While Luke destroys the Death Star, the Empire and Darth Vader are still intact by the end of the movie. The next two movies in the saga, The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, would establish the trilogy as Hollywood's M.O. for tentpole franchises. Mm -hmm. Setting Mm -hmm. up multi-part narratives has become Hollywood's bread and butter Mm -hmm. since Marvel created interconnected cinematic universes. Right, yes. The more movies a franchise can lock viewers in for, the better. So it's like you said, he started that idea of... They didn't have that before. Right. These trilogies, these sequels that you felt compelled to... You want to go see your friends Mm -hmm. again on screen and see what they're up to now. Absolutely. So about this franchise, it has obviously sequels, prequels, spinoffs, special edition. It supposedly, according to Vanity Fair, has grossed $7.8 billion worldwide at the box office, plus, this source says, a staggering $32 billion for all the merchandise. So different articles give different numbers, but it's a lot of money. As you all know, there are nine movies total. We had... Are there going to be more, or was that it? Well, there were nine movies total... In, in George's in plan? In George's plan. Okay. But there have been a lot more than that. Right, right, right. Yes, yes I knew that. But I wondered if there was going to be any more past the, the Oh, nine. in George's plan? Yeah. I don't, don't know think about so. that. I don't think so. The final three were after George Lucas sold Lucasfilm to Disney in 2012. Mm-hmm. So episode seven, The Force Awakens, episode eight, The Last Jedi, and episode nine, The Rise of Skywalker were all Disney films. Okay. Obviously, we've had so many parodies, other stories. Parodies. We One could... of the parodies. It's my favorite. Have you seen the YouTube seagulls? Stop it now. It's a bad lip reading. So when this is over, I'm going to show this to Candy. It cracks me up. Our friend Bree is the one that first showed it to me. It makes me laugh and people think I'm insane (laughs) because it is so stupid. But it is, it's when Yoda is training Luke. Okay. And it's a bad lip reading. So it's the wrong words, but they, it (laughs) makes it look like that's what they're saying. Well, I'll put it in the show notes, but it cracks me up. Oh, it's such a funny parody. Okay. I love it. I'm looking forward to that. Well, we could be here all day. I'm just going to mention a couple, but obviously early on we had things like, Spaceballs. Spaceballs. Mm-hmm. We've had a ton of books. We had The Mandalorian, which started, I believe, in 2019. We've had comic books, graphic novels, Lego Star Wars movies, Clone War movies. It goes on and on. So obviously, the franchise, that last impact I wanted to discuss, but... It goes beyond just the products. Several sources talked about the fact that it basically has a cult following. You can oh, yeah. you can say, may the force be with you to anybody. Yeah. And they know what you're talking about. Yeah. The fact that we say, may the fourth be with right. you on May 4th. We do. And I actually chose when I adopted Scotty, they didn't know what his birthday was because he was found as a little kitten and brought in. So when I chose his birthday, I chose May the 4th. It's also Audrey Hepburn's birthday for those of you who care to know. <laughs> so those two things influenced his birthday nice well unbelievable influence on pop culture and politics we've had things such as president ronald reagan proposed his strategic defense initiative in 1983 and critics called it star wars which was meant to be 
kind of a mocking uh-huh. thing because basically they, they weren't saying it was awesome. <laughs> they were saying uh, it could only exist in fantasy. In Star Wars. Yes. Right? I mean, it just had an unending... The impact is still going on. Yes. There is no end to this impact. Yes. One last comment I'll make is there is something we've mentioned before called mm-hmm. the National Film Registry, which according to its mission, it talks about the fact that it's dedicated to preserving culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant American movies. And as of... 2021 mm-hmm. all three of that original star wars trilogy are on the list are now in that list yes. wow they're there armchair psychologist so for our armchair ashley i thought i would share with you something from george it's piggybacking on an idea that i've already mentioned okay but he says just a little bit more about about this idea and then i'm going to get your reaction okay and some of your thoughts I did research to try to distill everything down into motifs that would be universal. I attribute most of the success to the psychological underpinning, which have been around for thousands of years, and the people still react the same way to the stories as they always have. So, Ashley, I don't know if you could hear it, but that was George Lucas himself. He was going back to what we had talked about earlier, the fact that he tried to base his story or incorporate that hero's journey mm-hmm. in his story. Mm-hmm. And in this little clip, he said that he attributes a lot of the success of Star Wars mm-hmm. to the fact that he had those universal, universal. motifs. Yes. And that these are those underpinnings that he thinks appeal to everyone. Mm -hmm. So my question to you, do you agree with him that that's a primary reason for this success? Why do you think this has been so successful? Why does the farm girl think the space epic has been successful? (laughs) I think George is right. I think, well, I think it's a whole mixed bag of stuff that you've covered, but I think at the basis of it, it is a story that everyone can identify with. I don't want to say simple in a negative way, but it's a very simple story, good versus evil. Mm -hmm. You can pick a side, you can watch it and celebrate the victories, and it's just clean cut. Mm -hmm. There's no gray, really, except for maybe Darth Vader turns out to be, you know, that's a little bit gray. Oh, is he good? Is he bad? What happened to him? But yes, the themes of it are very basic, very universal. And mm-hmm. then you had charming people, attractive people in the leads. You had mm-hmm. the merchandising. You had the innovation. We've talked about that over and over again. The first thing of something is right. always the biggest. Right. So I think all of that contributed to it. Yeah. I agree. That was that was good. I do think, as you said, and as George said, I think the idea of pulling in these universal themes or archetypes, they mm-hmm. use that term archetypes. Mm-hmm. I think that that was important to this. Carrie Fisher actually even spoke about that too. She said, you have the young adventurer, you have the swashbuckler, mm-hmm. you have the damsel in distress. She's mm-hmm. not a helpless damsel sure. in distress, but she She's is still a damsel in distress. in distress. You have the wise mentor. Yeah. These are story structure ideas. Yes. And they appeal to all of us. Yeah. And we relate and we know who to root for. Mm -hmm. We know who to root against. Mm -hmm. We get emotionally involved. You're right. I think there was something about the innovation as well. We have all of these very familiar story structures, very relatable story structures, but then we also have the fun and the new and the novel because we're seeing new planets, new places, new aliens, new creatures, new special effects we've never seen before. But I think even with all the special effects, you can have a movie that has all of that stuff, but it doesn't succeed because at the basis of it, he had a story that everyone identified with. You Mm -hmm. have to go down to the story because it doesn't 
doesn't matter how much you dress up a bad story. It's still a bad story. This right. was at the heart of it. That's what he worked on. That was the story. Although I did hear at one point that they said they were going to tie George to a, a chair and make him recite his own dialogue. So I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know how great he was at the dialogue, but his plotting was pretty superior. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. And then it takes us back to the statement that we've now said probably 50 million times. You can also have a great story, but you have to have believable characters yes. who relate well to each other uh-huh. if you want to carry it off. The chemistry and of the yes, casting. I think that they did such a good job casting. Mm-hmm. You love them. You feel like you know them. Mm-hmm. You are Very invested. Quickly. You are invested in their success. And I could I could see where people are standing up in the theaters cheering and applauding mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and clapping. I mean, yes, you cared about these people. Mm-hmm. So honestly, I think you're right. It is so multi-layered. George Lucas and his team, all the people who worked with him on mm-hmm. this, because we certainly don't want to downplay all the other geniuses who were involved in this work. I think the most genius people are collaborators. Even though it was George's vision and he said, I want to do it my way. He also worked with people and he collaborated to tell his story. He just said, this is my vision. This is my story, but let's work together to make it come to life. Which goes back again to what I said before. He brought in people he respected, Mm -hmm. including Steven Spielberg Mm -hmm. and other filmmakers. And he showed them that, what do you want to call it? A pre-cut or that one of those early cuts, because he did care about feedback. And he cared about what not just his team members, but other perspectives mm-hmm. might say as well. And mm-hmm. he used that to make things he did. better. I don't remember it right now, but there, a long time ago, back when I listened to Inside Jaws, the same guy who made Inside Jaws, Mark Ramsey, mm-hmm. made another series called Inside Star Wars. And oh, I listened nice. to that a long, long time ago. And I remember really liking it. So I'm going to just go ahead and blanket recommend that too mm-hmm. for anybody who wants to dig deeper. Because obviously in an hour, you and right. I are not going to cover the scope of Star Wars. Absolutely not. But we hope that we have provided a little fun this week as we head into May the 4th be with you. That's right. (laughs) And let's just go ahead and end there, Ashley. Okay. How about a big cheers to George Lucas and all of the members of his team, all of the collaborators, Mm -hmm. including Joseph Campbell, Mm -hmm. who... And Stephen. And Stephen, who helped to create one of the most groundbreaking, enduring, and beloved franchises of all time. Of all time. Cheers to you. Cheers. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can Join the Scandalwater community through our Scandalwater Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandalwater Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandalwater theme and other music, Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandalwater are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.